Hopefully you're at Revelation chapter 1, and the title of this evening's message is Revelation, the Next Dimension. Let me take a little quick poll before we start. How many of you have enjoyed, have had the privilege of enjoying a three-dimensional IMAX movie at the movie theater? How many? Raise your hand. Most, that was an incredible experience. I, I mean, I, I can't really watch movies the same way anymore without going to the IMAX and watching it in 3D. Let me ask you a question, and it might be showing some of your ages, but everybody realizes that 3D films were tried years ago, weren't they? But not with the same great success. Some of you may remember in the 1970s, there were uh, attempts through regular television broadcasts, over-the-air broadcasts. There was a show on Channel 32, The Son of Svanguli. How many remember The Son of Svanguli? Okay, you're, you're, getting, you're showing how old you are, Pastor Eric. I have no idea. Well, they wanted to show the first three-dimensional TV show, and they did The Creature of the Black Lagoon. And the only place that you could get the special 3D glasses that you needed to capture this episode was from this local 7-Eleven. You had to buy a Slurpee, and the thing was taped onto it, you know. We didn't care about, you know, contaminants back then. <laughs> it's just, you know. And, and so you drink the Slurpee, and you peel off the glasses, and they were all wet from the condensation of the Slurpee. And then you put the glasses on, and we were all sitting there in the living room waiting for the creature of the Black Lagoon to be in 3D. Horrible. It didn't work. It was, it was silly. And we were like, that was such a scam. It's kind of like the Christmas story when he gets the decoder and it says, drink more Ovaltine. Said, what? A lousy commercial? It was a ripoff. And now we go to the 3D IMAX movie. And the first time taking my daughter there, I can still remember her. She was like, you know, grasping at things that came out. Or she'd go back like this when it pointed out so you know, close to her nose and such. Incredible. But actually, we're only seeing things as they actually are, but we're in need of glasses, we're in need of the special technology that allows the picture to be broadcast or viewed in that particular manner. We see life so two-dimensionally in our current culture, in our current state. In fact, our society has done everything it possibly can to wipe away any kind of understanding of supernatural activities. That can't be. Everything has to have a natural explanation. When in actuality, there are many dimensions that are happening all at the same time that we don't see on a day-to-day basis. There's a spiritual world that is taking place all around us that we don't see, that we cannot pull the curtain and look back into. We don't have those special glasses, but we have the book of Revelation that does just that. It gives us a glimpse into a world that we are so naive of, but it is actually reality. Think about that for a moment. We think that everything natural is reality, but in actuality, the reality that we think is reality has only been created by that which is truly reality. I'll let you chew on that. (laughs) But in actuality, there's a lot more happening, isn't there? As we move through the book of Revelation, we are going to see behind that curtain. 
we are going to get a glimpse of heaven. We are going to get a glimpse of the conflict between angelic beings and demonic forces. We are going to see the rise of an individual empowered by Satan himself that wants to be the one who would stand in the place of Jesus Christ. We are going to see him exalt himself and demand to be worshipped as God by the world. We're going to see this individual control not only the world politically, but we're also going to show him as he controls it economically and religiously. And in all of this, we are going to see in through this veil, through the words of the book of Revelation and the imagery that John gives us that was given to him, a snapshot of what is still yet to come. If I were to ask you to stand on top of the mountain and looking down at the book of Revelation as an overview or as a flyby, it would play out like this. In fact, we don't even have to guess the outline of the book because it's actually given to us by John in verse 19. Look there with me. As we're going to notice, Jesus will instruct him to write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. It's a three-point outline. Chapter 1 are the things that he has seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are. Chapters 4 through 22 are the things that are going to take place after this. And in it we are going to see this progression of John exiled on an island called Patmos, given a revelation by Jesus Christ, delivered by an angel to John while on that island in exile, him recording it, him bringing it back. This revelation that is given to him is meant to be distributed to seven different churches in Asia Minor, chapters 2 and 3. And then John is caught up into heaven, chapter 4, And chapter 5, we are in heaven before the throne room of God. And chapter 6, a series of judgments begin. Trumpets, bowls, or seals. And they play out from 6 to chapter 19. And then we see the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as He returns, they are gathered there in the field of Megiddo, in a conflict that we know as the Battle of Armageddon. And then Jesus returns, sets up his millennial kingdom, chapter 20. And then chapter 21 and 22, I think, are the most neglected chapters of this wonderful book where God creates the new heavens and the new earth that has not been touched or defiled by sin or death. That's what we're going to see as we peek behind the curtain through our look of the book of Revelation together. Now it is revelation, not revelations. If you call it the book of revelations, we're going to ask you to find a new church. It's my pet peeve. Singular. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Things to look for on our way, the glorification of Jesus Christ is foremost in the entire book. Notice the way the Spirit of God inspires John and the number seven is used throughout the book. 
Notice the insight to heaven and the spiritual world and heaven and held uh, at uh, conflict together and judgment and salvation of those throughout the book who overcome. The thousand year reign of the king of himself and the new heavens and the new earth are all things that we should look for together as we walk through this book as a church. Whenever we start a new book, there are things that we need to ask ourselves about it. First of all, how did the book get its title? Who was the author of the book? What's the occasion of the book? What's the theme of the book, etc.? All of these questions are answered for us in the first chapter. All of these, and that's what we're going to be outlining for you, starting in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And let's begin. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Let's stop there. Before we go on any farther, whenever you go to see a feature film in that iMac 3D experience, The very first name that is advertised is who? The very first name that goes up is the main what? Actor. The main actor, the main star of the movie, right? Who is the main star, the main person of the book of Revelation? Jesus Christ, first and foremost. From the very beginning... This book is all about him. It's not about the Antichrist. It's not about the Battle of Armageddon. It's not about the wonders of the tribulation period. It is all about Jesus Christ. He is the star, of, if you will, of the letter that we are about to look at together. Now, many people kind of shy away from the book of Revelation because they don't believe that they can personally understand it. But if you understand the name of the book itself, you would be encouraged to look into it for yourself. Revelation simply means to unveil or to uncover or to make manifest. God wants you to know what this book is all about. As a follower of Jesus Christ, he wants you to know what this book is all about. I love this story that I heard a pastor say, and he was actually speaking of himself. Uh, When he was going to theological seminary, he was a professor before he became a pastor, and him and his colleagues at this theological seminary would often have very passionate, heated discussions about the book of Revelation, you know, often differing in their viewpoints and their opinion concerning it. And during their lunch or during their uh, time uh, that they would have together outside of the university or the the seminary, I should say, uh, they would often, these professors would meet, and I believe this pastor was one of these professors, would meet at this shoeshine stand. And they would get their shoes shined together. And the man who ran that stand was a man named Sam. And Sam, the shoeshine man, that's just his name, uh, would love to listen to these two professors debate passionately because Sam was a believer and loved Jesus Christ himself. And he felt blessed to be in the company of these knowledgeable men and to hear 
the Word of God being debated and articulated so well? Well, time after time after time of listening to these two professors going at it in a a friendly debate, one of them jokingly said to Sam, the shoeshine gentleman, Sam, what do you think about this debate? Who do you think is right? What do you think the book of Revelation is all about? And as he simply smiled, he looked up to these two brilliant men and said, all I know, gentlemen, based on what you said is that Jesus wins in the end. And they were profoundly taken back by his insight. Truly, that is what this book is all about. Jesus wins in the end. I believe anybody who wants to and desires to can study the book of Revelation and get a general working understanding of it because it's meant to be shared. It's meant to be opened up and read by Christians. Now, I think it's interesting that the Greek word behind Revelation is the word, can anybody know? What's the Greek word behind the word revelation? The word we use all the time starts with an A. Apocalypsis, that's right. Where we get the word what from? Apocalypse. Now when we talk about the word apocalypse, what do we think of? Chaos and catastrophe, right? But in actuality, it simply means unveiling. It means revealing. It means revelation. Isn't that interesting? For you and I who are believers in Jesus Christ, we look at that Greek word and it has such a positive overtone of encouragement and edification because our Lord and Savior is being revealed and returning to this earth, right? The world looks at that word and what do they see? Chaos and catastrophe. Isn't that interesting? Because the return for Jesus Christ for those who are not found in Christ is going to be that of wrath and judgment. Isn't that interesting? I think that's fascinating. But unlike the prophecies that are contained in the book of Daniel when we went through that book together as a church, remember what God said to Daniel in Daniel 12.4. He says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. With the anticipation that knowledge would increase concerning biblical prophecy towards the end and towards closer towards the, imminent, uh, the imminent return of Jesus Christ, the world did not yet fully understand all that Daniel had to say. But when in the conclusion of Revelation 20:10, listen to what God says to John. And he, that is God, said to me, "Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near." It is meant to be open, it is meant to be read, and it is meant to be understood by those who are in the church, followers of Jesus Christ. John states from the beginning that this book is about Jesus Christ, and that's the way we will approach it as a church. Let me read one commentator to you. John's prophecy is primarily the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the future events. You must not divorce the person from the prophecy, for without the person there could be no fulfillment of the prophecy. But let's move into verse 2, and we are then introduced to the author, in verses 1 and 2, I should say, where John is clearly the author of this book. This is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and now he is the author of the book of Revelation. The angel has delivered it to him, and we're going to see in a moment that he is on an island called Patmos, 
And John, the same one who gave us the gospel of John that led us to believe, to allow us to receive life, salvation, and show Jesus Christ as a prophet, in his epistles he went from believing to being sure of our salvation in Jesus Christ. So we go from life received to life revealed, from salvation to sanctification, from the prophet spoken of in the gospel of John, in the epistles, the priest of Jesus Christ, to the book of Revelation, where we go from uh, believing to being sure to being ready, the life reward and the sovereignty and the king who Christ is currently. John takes us through that development in his book. And as we see that playing itself out, we must ask the question then, when was this book written? Now, there are many who hold to an early date, A.D. 65. And I think as time has gone on, that has become less common of a place or an opinion. Because we have second century documents that tell us very clearly that the book was written at the end of the Roman Empire's life, Titus Flavius Domitian. And as we've looked at his life, his reign ended in the mid-90s, and therefore this book was written in the late or mid-90s. 95 AD is probably the closest that we have. That writing tells us in the second century, um, in that writing, uh, Irenaeus declared that Revelation had been written towards the end of Domitian's reign. Later writers such as Clement, Origen, Victorian, uh, who wrote the first commentary on Revelation, and Jerome all affirmed the date of A.D. 95. So it was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. It was the last thing that the, the Apostle John wrote in his life. Apostle John was the last of the apostles that lived. And so we will see it develop from a later point of view it, uh, Jerusalem has already destroyed and therefore it could not be holding to that preterist position concerning the Roman Empire. That being said though, one of the things that take people back when they begin to read the book of Revelation has to be the symbolism that's used throughout it. There are a lot of linguistic experts who want to comment on why it is written in the way that it is. It's so unique. Uh, some believe that it was imagery that only Christians would understand. Therefore, if a Roman officer got it, he wouldn't have any clue with what he was reading or what he was looking at. Uh, these symbols would not be weakened over the course of time, that they would hold its definition. Now, though he uses symbol and imagery throughout the book of Revelation, I don't want you to necessarily think that imagery is superior to that of the written word. Because how do we have that imagery communicated to us? In what form? The written word. So let's not negate the written word. But some see it as that these imagery and the symbols would not weaken over the course of time or be diminished in any way uh, by history. Uh, John was also to, uh, able to draw on great images in God's revelation and assemble them into an exciting drama that would encourage the persecuted and suffering saints of those centuries. 
Imagery also often stirs emotion and conveys emotion when being read and witnessed. However, we must not let our imagination run away with our interpretation of this imagery. But also, we must not simply conclude that all of these images are mere allegory. We can't go either way. One commentator said it this way, and I love it, and this is the way we're going to approach it. Nearly 300 references to the Old Testament are found in the book of Revelation. This means we must anchor our interpretation to what God has already revealed lest we misinterpret this important prophetic book. So we're going to let the Bible define the Bible. I think you're always on safe ground when you do that. And you are able to maintain that balance when needed. But who are the readers of this book? Verses 3 and 4, look there with me. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and blessed are, I'm sorry, and those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. In these you will hear the time is near, the time is soon, etc., We see in chapters 2 and 3 when Jesus is addressing the churches individually, there is an urgency for them to respond to what he is writing and saying. Or he's going to come and remove the golden lampstand from their midst. So there is an urgency. There is something that's going to happen suddenly. But also contained in two of these words, the Greek word takomos is used where we get the word tachometer from. And it also means that when these things start, it's going to go quickly like a row of dominoes. It's going to just, once the first event starts, that's it. It's going to go very, very quickly. So both are in play when we look at these words. Because again, we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3, seven churches that existed at that time are being addressed specifically and asked to do something immediately or suffering the consequences as a result. But notice verse 3. Again, if God did not want you to understand this book, he wouldn't have contained this promise and seven other beatitudes throughout the book of Revelation. What is a beatitude? Blessed is he. You're going to see, blessed is he throughout this book. So not only does he want you to understand it, but he wants you to be blessed by it. But not just reading it, right? What does he want you to do? Number one, he wants you to read it out loud. Okay? It's meant to be proclaimed. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be discussed. It's meant to be openly communicated. Secondly, uh, he wants us to hear, and that means to understand what is being said. And thirdly, he wants us to keep it and guard it in our hearts, cherish it as a treasure. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus says that I no longer call you my servants, I call you my friends. All that the Father has given to me, I now give to you. We are privileged and blessed to have this book. Let us treat it as such. Let us read it aloud. Proclaim it. Let us hear it and understand it. Let us keep it and guard it as if it was a treasure to you and I. I like what one wrote. The knowledge that the events that are depicted in this book of Revelation are soon to take place 
should have a motivation or motivate Christians to live holy and obedient lives. The anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ was always meant to lead the follower of Jesus Christ to a position of obedience to Christ. Listen to what Peter had to say. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that is the return, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish at peace. As Warren Worsby writes in his commentary, John did not send this book of prophecy to the assemblies in order to satisfy their curiosity about the future. God's people were going through intense persecution and they needed encouragement. As they heard this book, its message would give them strength and hope. But even more, its message would help them examine their own lives and each local assembly to determine those areas needing correction. They were not only to hear the word of God, but they also needed to keep it. And that is guarded as a treasure and practice what it said. So we have the author, we have the we have the, the title, and now we move into our fourth, and that is the dedication. As we see here in verse 4, if you read with me, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then he goes on, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as we get into this dedication, first, John addresses them and he asks them to have grace and peace be to you from who, he starts with the Father, from who he who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, which is a very unique term for the Holy Spirit that is only used here in the book of Revelation by John to indicate the Holy Spirit, who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. In this beginning, in verses 4 and 5, we have the Trinity articulated to us. It is from that Trinity that Godhead itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, verse 5, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings of the earth, on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The seven spirits is a term, again, that he uses uniquely. Most scholars believe it is derived from Isaiah 11.2. As Isaiah writes of the Spirit in seven different characteristics, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Trinity articulated, understood, and shown as equal here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then moving to the dedication in verses 5 and 6 in a brief short doxology, which is a praise. 
Again, the person of Jesus Christ being exalted here and in whom will be fully revealed at the end. John now begins here in verse 5 and 6 not to depict him any longer as the suffering servant, but now as the risen king. And it is incredibly important that you see that. Because just in a few minutes, we're going to see him portray Christ in a manner that we have not seen him before. And as he looks here, he praises God for what he has done and notice what he has done for us. As he moves here in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, meaning that his resurrection now allows for the resurrection of the dead from that point forward who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and the ruler of the kings on the earth, he is now king of kings, lord of lord, to him who loves us, number one, who freed us, number two, uh, from our sins by his blood, number uh, four, uh, made us a kingdom, brought us together in the unity, and that is the body of Christ, the kingdom of God under the lordship and the kingship of Christ, priest to his God and Father, meaning that through Christ, who is our only mediator, each one of us can go to God the Father directly, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. And that's the dedication of this. It's all about Jesus. He starts out at the star and by verse 6 he is being articulated in praise for all that he has done on your and I's behalf. That moves to the fifth point and that is the theme of this letter found in verses 7 and 8. Let's look at it together. Behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. For I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The overriding theme of the book of Revelation has to be the return of Jesus Christ. And let's look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 19. Let's fast forward to the end because you're probably all chomping on the bit already saying, just get me to the end, his return, here it is. And I want to read it with you together because I think it's just incredible to read. Listen to what he says here, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. A little bit different than the individual hanging on the cross mocked by his crucifiers. Huh? A little different. Totally different depiction of Jesus Christ. 
is found in the book of Revelation. No longer the suffering servant. He has conquered death and hell, and now he is the risen king. And that is the emphasis of the book of Revelation. Also the overcoming of the saints. The saints who overcome and the judgment of the world. And here drawing back to Zechariah 12, 10 through 12, those who pierced him will wail and mourn along with all the tribes of the earth at his return. Why? Judgment is at the door. All things will now be held accountable. All the evil of the world will now be dealt with. It will be an awe-striking moment. It will be a moment of complete soberness as the whole world sees the return of Jesus Christ as the sky tears open and the white horse appears with those following him on other white horses. And as he concludes this statement found here concerning who he is, his theme of this letter Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. And he equates himself equal with God the Father, which was totally proper for him to do so. What does the Alpha and the Omega mean? They are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So God is at the beginning of all things and also at the end. He is the eternal God, unlimited by time. He is also the Almighty, able to do anything. Almighty is a key name for God in the book of Revelation. Understand this. John 1.1 tells us that all things were made through who? Jesus Christ. Now he is saying, I'm the beginning of all things. I will be the end of all things. It is him, the bookends of all the existence of mankind. And we should be awestruck by that knowledge in and of itself. He started all things, he will end all things, and then create all things new again. That is what the book of Revelation is. When we come to the occasion of the book, why it was written, where it was written, etc., that is answered for us also here in chapter 1. Let's look at verses 9 through 18. And we are going to see in these verses what John heard, what John saw, and what John did. There are three things that we are going to watch for in the occasion of this letter articulated in verses 9 through 18. What John heard is found in verses 9 through 11. Let's read them together. I, John, your brother and partner in in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience and endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He had been exiled to a penal colony on a remote island called Patmos. By Emperor Domitim himself, if history is correct. Tradition tells us that that wasn't the Roman Empire's first course of action with John. John was stirring things up leading individuals to Jesus Christ. The Roman Empire came down upon him and first wanted to deal with him by boiling him in oil as an elderly man. Problem, he didn't boil. He just sat there and asked for shampoo and conditioner. 
They didn't know what to do with him. So they just expelled him. They exiled him on an island thinking that they were done with him and out of sight, out of mind type of thing. Isn't it interesting who got the last word though? All God wanted to do was just put him aside so he could be alone with John because God wanted to show him something. And he wanted this revelation to encourage not only John but all of those that were going under horrific persecution at that time. And how did God decide to encourage these people going through persecution? By reminding them that they are that He is in charge of all things, that He is sovereign, that He is in control, and that He is the judge and the king. And regardless of their temporal, temporal suffering, eternity awaits us who are in Jesus Christ and that has been secured by Him. What greater comfort can you have than that? That is what He brings to light. And he is there because of his account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He is being persecuted for his faith. He is sharing in the tribulation that is occurring at that time. We find all of that in verse 9. Look at verse 10 with me. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, exiled on Patmos, persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ, still, still, even though he's all by himself, decides to go to church. The Lord's day. The first day of the week, the day that Jesus Christ arose, a day that the apostles set aside to remember the Lord in communion each and every week, John continues that practice alone by himself. He is in the Spirit, which means simply that he was consciously aware of the Spirit of God's presence with him. Isn't that encouraging? You're never out of God's sight. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what you're facing. John being exiled to this remote island, and yet he is still in the Spirit. It's, It's amazing. On the Lord's day, he set that day aside to spend with his God. That's John's attitude. That's John's heart towards his Savior. And God met him there. And then notice, he says, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Write what you are going to see. A vision is going to be given to him. He is going to write that vision and he is going to send it to these churches. So what did he see? Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
Who does that sound like to you based upon what we have read in Revelation 19? It is Jesus himself. No longer the one in whom John remembered. No longer the one that John rested his head upon his chest. The suffering servant come in the human form as a man. He is now the risen king. Each one of these attributes we will discuss and expound upon when we get to the seven churches. For Jesus will introduce himself using one of these attributes to each of the seven churches. And it completely communicates to those churches what he desires them to know about himself to help them through what they are going through and to make the changes that are necessary. So we'll look at those more closely together, but I will sum it up for you this way. He is no longer a suffering servant, but a judge and a king. Each one of these um, descriptions of him have Old Testament connotations that would indicate one who is in a position of judgment, meaning he is the judge who is about to judge. He is no longer a servant that has been submitted to the subjection of his creation. He is a risen king, a conquered, um, he is conquered, and he is victorious in all that he has done. One commentator wrote, the vision of Christ was totally different. His appearance from the Savior that John knew in the flesh, he when he was ministering on earth, he is not the gentle Jewish carpenter that sentimentalists like to sing about. He is the risen, glorified, exalted Son of God, the priest king who has the authority to judge all men, beginning with his own people. For Peter writes in 1 Peter four seventeen through 18 For it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome of, of those for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So in what he had heard, he then turned to see Jesus Christ. It's also very important that you and I notice in verse uh, seven and 18, 17 and 18 what John did in light of what he saw and what he heard. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Look there with me. And John speaking, when I saw him, what did he do? I fell at his feet as though dead. Please notice that. This is the same John that felt so comfortable with Jesus that he laid his head on the chest of Jesus during the Last Supper. The one in whom Jesus loved is the way John referred to himself in his gospel. And now he sees the same Jesus, but his reaction and his response is completely different, isn't it? He fell what? Dead at the feet of Jesus. But notice what Jesus did. But he laid his his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? John just laying himself before this risen king, seeing him in the glorified state in which he is. And how does Jesus respond once again? Gracefully, lovingly, his love for John, John's love for him. It's just amazing how it's developed here. But notice that Daniel reacted the same way when he saw Jesus in Daniel 10, 7 and 9. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. As I heard the sounds of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Or Isaiah, when he sees God. And the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now in the light of that, listen to these comments. Because I think this is one of the things we need to learn here at our church. At the very beginning of this book, Jesus presented himself to his people in majestic glory. Listen to what this pastor says. I can't agree with him more. What the church needs today is a new awareness of Christ and his glory. We need to see him high and lifted up. There is a dangerous absence of awe and worship in our assemblies today. We are boasting about standing on our own feet instead of breaking and falling at His feet. That's so true. That is so true today. This is what John saw. This is what John was given. And as we conclude here in verse 19, as Jesus is now instructing John and giving him the outline for what is about to proceed and become the letter of revelation of of Jesus Christ. In verse 19, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this. Those things that you have seen, chapter 1. Those things that are, chapters 2 and 3. Those things that are, to take place after this, chapters 4 through 22. That outline is substantiated by chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to what John writes. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Meaning, that's the next portion of what is going to be articulated and outlined here in this three-point outline. Now, if you are wondering about some of the imagery, specifically the lampstands and the, the seven stars that were in his hand, verse 20 is given to us. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
Here we see a perfect example of the Scriptures defining for us what it means. Just like when Jesus was asked about the parables in the Gospels, we see the same thing happening here. We see that these lampstands are actually the seven churches themselves. But the seven stars that are in the hand of Jesus are the seven angels of those seven churches. The word angels there in the Greek uh, can simply mean messenger. So scholars debate, are these actual angels over these seven churches? Or are these referring to the seven messengers, or that would be the, the elder of that church? People debate that. But the word angel has always been used as the English equivalent of the word that is behind it in the Greek. So angels speaking to the churches, which are represented by the stars that are in his hand, and the lampstands. That's going to be important for us to remember as we get into the seven churches in our next few studies. The seven churches that are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 are so important for us that we're going to take each one individually. We need to. Because we need to understand where they failed. We need to understand where they succeeded. We need to understand and heed the warnings. And we need to look at the um, commendations. We need to look at the uh, places where they were uh, commended for what they did correctly. And I think that they are some of the most valuable uh, portions of the book of Revelation. And then making our ways through chapters 2 and 3, those things that are the second point of the outline, we will then get into chapters 4 through 22 at the end uh, as we continue through the study of the book of Revelation. In conclusion, there are nine points I want you to remember. Revelation is a Christ-centered book, number one. Number two, Revelation is an open book. It is meant to be understood. It is meant to be read. And a blessing is contained for those who read it aloud, hear it, and keep it. The book is filled with symbols that are timeless in their message and limitless in their content. The book of Revelation is a book of prophecy showing us the future that is going to take place. It is a book of blessing. We've already noted the promises that are found within it of blessing. It is a relevant book because John wrote it and encouraged us saying, shortly these things must come to pass. We must heed it. There is nothing irrelevant about it. It is relevant to you and I today. It is a majestic book. It shows Christ from the position of His throne, the reigning King. It is a universal book where all of the world is addressed, those in Christ and those who are not. It is a climatic book, number nine, because it pinnacles with the return of Jesus Christ physically to this earth. I hope I've whet your appetite this evening. I hope that I have articulated well enough for you to appreciate what we are about to get into. And lastly, I hope that I have made it abundantly clear that everything that we are going to look at from tonight going forward in the book of Revelation is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. This is Revelation, the next dimension.